Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Tuesday. Hope everyone is having a good week. So we've got a special episode for you today. I am talking to James Lindsay. He's the author of Cynical Theories. He is also the president of New Discourses. And we uh, he's an expert on critical theory. And we're going to talk about a lot of what's going on right now uh, with the censorship, some of the rhetoric that we're seeing from Joe Biden and Kamala Harris about splitting up people by their racial groups, where that comes from, where these ideas and these policies come from. We're also going to talk about uh, who Biden tapped as the uh, head of the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ. She had some interesting things to say about people of different races back when she was at Harvard. And so you're really, really going to enjoy his analysis. He is so Many interesting things to say, and I'm going to have him back on in a couple months, too, to talk a little bit more about the philosophical origins of all of this craziness. But I'm so excited for you to listen to this interview. It really was supposed to be a short interview. It ended up being it was supposed to be 10 minutes. It ended up being like 45 minutes long because I couldn't stop talking to him and asking him questions. And I could have kept going for like another two hours. Um, And so I know that you guys are going to feel the same way when you listen to it. Before we actually get into the conversation, I want to tell you guys about Attitude. So this is a new sponsor. It's like Attitude except with an E at the beginning of it. And they make bamboo sheets. And so rather than cotton sheets, which are what most sheets are made out of, they use 100% organic bamboo fabric. This is a, a kind of softness that you have never felt before. I mean, these are... You don't... Even before you wash them, they are so soft and they are so silky and uh, nice and smooth to lay on. As soon as you get these sheets, as soon as you get these attitude sheets, you, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I have never, I've never felt something so soft in my life. And so unlike cotton, which consumes, uh, you know, massive amounts of water, energy and chemicals during production, attitude uses organic bamboo. Attitude's 100% organic bamboo fabric has a unique texture that is similar to silk. It delivers unparalleled comfort that actually it can feel better than than cotton. Uh, their passion is to provide the best quality sleep in the most sustainable way. Attitude's organic bamboo fabrics are temperature regulating. They're also hypo, uh, hypoallergenic, if you're looking for that. They're antibacterial, and they're also toxin-free. They have a commitment to conscious living, um, and it doesn't have to mean a compromising comfort and quality. Sometimes when you get these organic uh, products that say that they're toxin-free, you're worried that they're not going to be high quality. You don't have to worry about that with Attitude because they make sure that they're not compromising on those things. So you can try any attitude bedding for 30 nights. If you are not completely satisfied, then you can return it for a full refund. So there really is nothing to lose. You can get 20% off your first order plus free shipping when you visit attitude.com slash Allie. That's A-L-L-I-E and enter promo code Allie. Remember that is attitude as in Eco attitude. That's where the name comes from. Uh, attitude.com slash Allie for free shipping and 20% off your order. That is attitude.com slash Allie, promo code Allie. James, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Can you tell everyone quickly who you are and what you do? I am the founder and president, I suppose, of New Discourses, which is a company that is trying to articulate what's happening with the woke movement. I'm trying to build a bridge, in a sense, between their academic literature, their activist literature, and um, everyday people, or at least smart everyday people. So it's that kind of, I describe it as peeling the onion. Um if you think of how an onion's constructed, if you want to cook an onion and you know you can do whatever you want with it, it's got that thick papery layer on the outside. And that's sort of like what I'm trying to take off so that even mm. if you want to fry the onion, if you want to make onion rings, whatever you want to do with it, you can do that. But I've got to get the thick, tough, papery outside off. And that's what I do at New Discourses. Other than that, I've written some books. Most recently, a book called Cynical Theories that explains the postmodern elements of the woke movement. And so mostly I explain the woke movement all the time. My background, I have a PhD in mathematics, so I'm not from the humanities. I don't work in the university anymore. I do this full time. So I think that's kind of who I am and what I do. Yeah. And are you surprised that the work that you do has placed you in common cause with people on the right, that people really regard you now as a conservative, even though you might not identify as that? I'm not surprised, but 
it wasn't something that if you would have said, you know, two years ago that I would have believed, I would have said, well, there's some hints that, you know, the conservatives are going to be more receptive to this than the people on the left. But I think all reasonable people will. And that, that turned out not to be true at all. Um, reasonable got overridden by by partisanship. So I've been pleasantly surprised, I think, to find quite a warm welcome from my many new friends on the right and in religious circles. And uh, I think it's been been kind of more pleasant than not, to be honest with you. It's been very eye-opening as well. Right. And you voted for Donald Trump. And the last time I talked to you, you told me that you uh, have voted for Democrats your entire uh, your entire adult life, but not this time. Over the past week or so, as we've seen a lot of the chaos go on, do you regret that at all? Or do you still, you know, stand by the decision to vote the way you did in November? Oh, I don't regret it a bit. I still completely stand by uh, that decision. Um, I am still very, very worried about what a Biden administration is likely to do. Uh, with regard, especially to the work that I do, which is about that woke movement. For example, we've already heard with the events at the Capitol, Biden characterized it right. as being, you know, it would have been totally different, he said, had it been black people. Um, he stoked that racial fire. He's already made indications, for example, uh, openly said, I think it was on Twitter either yesterday or the day before, that we're going to have to now start doing this Building Back Better program. And we're going to do that with racial equity in mind. And he named specifically racial minority groups in the U.S. that are going to be favored under his program. That's been on his website all along. I don't believe that any of this is going to help. In fact, I think it's all going to make things worse. Mm -hmm. That's even compared with the fact that that Trump <laughs> became kind of a singular object of focus that uh, stoked the culture war to to the fevered pitch that it's at presently. So, no, I don't regret my decision. And I also, just to be upfront, I don't agree with the consensus view of what happened at the Capitol, right. which is not to say I have an alternative explanation of what happened at the Capitol. My p position has remained, I don't know what happened at the Capitol and neither do you. Mm. Um, and so I don't jump on bandwagons very easily or very quickly. It took me months to decide, even after studying all of this for so long, that I would vote for Donald Trump. And you can see I talked to Glenn Beck over the summer and I, he was like, are you going to who are you going to vote for? I was like, nobody. I'm going to vote for myself. And I talked to Jack Murphy before that. And he was like, are you going to pull the trigger? And they kind of did this whole like emotional guilt thing at the end. And I'm like. I can't vote for Trump. He's part of the same problem. Mm -hmm. And so then finally, it took until October or something for me to to decide that I would vote for Trump um, and to get over that. So I don't jump on bandwagons very easily. And um, I'm not jumping on that bandwagon yet either. I want to go back to something that you said, in particular, about the threat that you see of wokeness within the Biden administration and tangibly what you see as the consequences of that. But first, I want to play the clip that you talked about that we saw on Twitter of Joe Biden saying that he is going to prioritize black, Latino, Asian small business owners. Our priority will be black, Latino, Asian and Native American owned small businesses, women owned businesses. And finally, having equal access to resources needed to reopen and rebuild. So can you translate this for us? Basically, he listed every demographic besides white male business owners. Was Asian on there, by the way? Did I, I Asian, see Asian? Asian was on there. Yes, okay. I know in the world. Because they often get lumped into white. Now. Right, right. And some people listening to this really have no idea what we're talking about. We're talking about wokeness or intersectionality. So can you translate as the person who is peeling back the skin of the onion uh, what Biden is saying and what he really means? OK, so the key thing to point out is where he says that we're finally going to give them equal access to the resources of society, because the point of view from which they're coming is one under a heading that's called critical race theory. I can say that now and people kind of know what I'm yeah. talking about, mm -hmm. at least heard of it. Critical race theory begins with the assumption that racism is the ordinary state of affairs in society and that it has not been improved upon. In fact, it only has been hidden better 
over all of the different things that we've done, like abolishing slavery, ending Jim Crow, ending segregation uh, in, in schools and in workplaces, passing the Civil Rights Act. The, the critical race theory holds that those things didn't end racism. They just hid it more successfully from people and made them less aware that they're participating in racism. So there's this belief that they're coming from, and Biden actually acknowledges that belief explicitly, that we're finally going to give them equal access to the resources of society. Uh, the belief says that that is not the case, and it has never been the case. And until there's a complete—this is truly the belief in critical race theory, that until the system itself is overthrown and replaced with a new one constructed by these race theorists, that it's not possible for there to be equal access to the uh, the resources and opportunities. What, are in, re in what do they mean society. by resources, and what do they mean by equal access? Money and power are the resources, frankly. Um so, uh, and, and also, how do I phrase it? Cultural, uh, being viewed equally, like in a very culturally relativistic sense that all cultures have, are, are exactly identical in terms of the, their capacity to produce success. So the view from critical race theory is that the, when you hear this phrase, cultural racism, is that the reason that black people are actually not as successful in the United States is in part because black culture is not held in equal esteem to white culture. We have a predominant white culture and that black culture is different. You'll notice that this assigns cultures to races, which is a racist thing to do. Um, so it's a very difficult way to think about the world until you understand how they think about it. But this is this is what they're talking about. So when you talk about access to the, the, the resources of society, we're primarily talking about money. And with Biden, that's explicitly what's being uh, discussed here and power. And so with money, what will happen is there will be these so-called equity programs and the equity programs are being used to prioritize access to money. With the COVID pandemic, it'll be prioritizing access to vaccines. They've said that they're going to do this by race to, and I quote, level the playing field, which in practice is a literally means having to let older white and other people die of the virus uh, because we have to level that playing field, apparently. Um, so those are the kinds of resources that can also include freedom or ability to travel. And under that's the, the rubric of equity. And under the rubric of diversity, it will be access to power. So it'll be positions that are higher up in companies or in government. You see Joe Biden appointing people explicitly doing so, as he says, because that they have certain racial or uh, sex characteristics. And so access to money, power, uh, including the, 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 the basic liberties to participate in society, like uh, it could be connected through COVID to the ability to travel. If they prioritize the vaccine and then say people who aren't vaccinated can't travel, then they can do that that way and make it just your your even basic freedom to move. Gotcha. And tell me that for the people who are listening to this and they're like, you know, that that doesn't sound like that's actually going to be the tangible consequence. He's just talking about equity. Who doesn't want equity? He's just talking about equality. Who doesn't want equality? When I posted about this on Twitter, that this is partiality. He claims to be a devout Catholic. The Bible explicitly speaks against partiality. Uh, the the pushback that I got is, well, what's wrong with finally allowing these people to just have the same kind of power and influence as money as, as white men have always had? Why are you so hateful? Why are you trying to push back against these disenfranchised groups? And it's really hard, obviously, to engage in this in a in a Twitter conversation. Thomas Sowell calls this cosmic justice that is not actually accomplished without injustice. You have to discriminate and hold back one group and push forward other groups, therefore not seeing people as individuals who might actually be disenfranchised in some way, whether they're white or black, but seeing people as part of a collection or a whole group that is just from our own perspective has been oppressed. And so it necessarily leads to some kind of other oppression or injustice. How do I explain that in layman's terms to people who haven't read your books, who haven't read Thomas Sowell, and uh, who really just think that we don't want any kind of fairness or equality for people who may or may not have been disenfranchised. 
It's not easy because it really frequently comes down to haggling about the meanings of words. Yeah. And it, for example, you see the word disenfranchised. Um, technically, with the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, full enfranchisement was given to all people of all demographics and was protected. So nobody's been disenfranchised for a very long time in that regard. Um, so... When when I say that, I'm not trying to make a, oh, you know, blah, 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 you know, that kind of an argument. It's we have to haggle about what you mean by the word disenfranchise before we can even start to have this conversation is the very difficult part. Because if you look, for example, at the way that different groups are are succeeding in society. What you find is that the narrative that is being pushed by, say, critical race theory or by Joe Biden in this in this case bears very little resemblance to reality. For example, they are claiming that race is a determining factor. Okay, that requires you to be able to explain why South and East Asians and, and very dark black on average Nigerian immigrants are the most successful groups in the United States right. by most of the outcome metrics. And they can't. It also requires you to explain if white people have always had access to, to, to money and power and privilege, why white Appalachian people are overwhelmingly statistically the poorest and uh, most ridden with with deep societal problems like deaths of despair and opioid addiction and so on. And so their narrative that they're pushing is a very simplistic one that does not match reality. Yeah. And so when you say, well, why don't you care about the enfranchisement of these people? You have to specify which people you mean, and then you have to then figure out how race becomes or remains the relevant variable. And then when you push that against the, the, the picture of the Civil Rights Act, which made it absolutely illegal uh, what are we talking about? 56 years ago, made it absolutely illegal to disenfranchise people intentionally by race um, yeah. or by sex. You, right. It's very difficult to say what what's going on there. Now, by the way, speaking of, you know, you mentioned Thomas Sowell and he talked about cosmic justice. Uh, Thomas Sowell, I would would put on a, on the good guy side of this uh, this argument. There's a bad guy side uh, that. that that you have to bring up this philosopher, one of the critical theorists from the Frankfurt School, named Herbert Marcuse, who was very prominent at Columbia University and eventually at um, UC, I think, San Diego, where he was the mentor to the the black activist Angela Davis, who is right. prominent within Black Lives Matter and so on. He was, in fact, her mentor. Angela Davis says that he radicalized her. He wrote an essay in 1965 called Repressive Tolerance, in which he called this exactly what mm. you're seeing, discriminating tolerance. And he also referred to the same discriminating tolerance as liberating tolerance and as repressive tolerance. And the idea that he was pushing is that we should only and, and this is explicit in what he says. I'm not I'm not uh, editorializing this. He explicitly says that we should not be tolerant of right wing movements even if we have to use violence to suppress them. But we must be tolerant of left-wing movements even when they are violent because of the goals, that they, the liberation goals that they seek to achieve. So what mm. we see is a profound logic of asymmetry that's being pushed on a narrative that doesn't – like there are, there are big question marks around if racism is the determining variable, why are South Asians, East Asians, and Nigerian immigrants the most successful groups in the United States if you yeah. talk about their ability for educational or financial attainment? Yeah. So you're saying the consistency is not the goal of critical race theory. They're not concerned with, okay, well, we denounced violence. If we denounce the violence at the Capitol, we have to denounce the violence that happened over the summer. So they're actually operating from what is, in a very strange sense, actually a congruent worldview, you're arguing, that says, um, well, the reason why someone like AOC or Ayanna Presley can say unrest is okay because there's unrest in their lives or protests are supposed to make people feel uncomfortable, even as there are people who are being murdered in these riots, the reason why they don't have to denounce those, but they can say what happened at the Capitol is domestic terrorism, is because they're actually operating not just from a place of hypocrisy, but from what they see is a very consistent and a congruent worldview, which is that liberation, what they see as liberation, we would obviously disagree uh, with that, 
What they see as liberation is worth murder. It's worth arson. It is worth looting. Whatever it takes, that's what they're going to do to accomplish that. These goals, whatever they may be of storming the Capitol, they're not good because they are allegedly right wing goals. And therefore, violence is all of the sudden very bad. Is that kind of the mentality? I I don't even think they realize that's the mentality. But is that where they're coming from without knowing it? Yeah, that is the logic of repressive tolerance, which, again, I'll point out that was written in 1965, and then it was it circulated very rapidly. He, Marcusa at the time was a rock star in radical left circles. It was written in 1965, and then we saw massive riots in 67, 68, and 69. Hmm. Uh, that logic has mainstreamed again, primarily since 2015, and what do we see through 2020? Riots. And we see people who have taken on that logic doing the exact exactly as you just just perfectly expressed it you see these people uh showing a very asymmetric analysis of what is and is not acceptable now to be completely fair to marcusa which isn't going to make him sound very good in that essay he says explicitly that all violence is always evil then he goes on in the next sentence to say however when have ethics ever been relevant to the making of history so um this is this is the argument from which they're coming. So they have an internally consistent logic that doesn't match with with logic. They have an internally consistent moral framework that doesn't match morality as we should understand it in a bigger picture sense. Yeah. And they're kind of unable to explain, I think, where it's coming from, what I've seen on social media as well. This is just different. They are uh, the people over the summer. They were, you know, protesting and rioting for the safety of black bodies. And we could even talk about that phrase and how strange it is and, and, and where it comes from. These people, you know, they just believed a lie. This is totally illegitimate, probably not even realizing that they're actually starting with a with a. Uh, philosophical premise that has some kind of history. They're just repeating the talking points. I've been very disappointed. You know, you and I have talked about some people in the woke evangelical world who are so bravely coming out against the Capitol storming, which I agree. I'm against political violence of all kinds. Mm -hmm. So call it out, condemn it. Absolutely. But who had nothing to say about the communities who were destroyed last year. I know for a fact that some of the people writing these articles like Dr. Russell Moore, for example, um, that he would not call himself a critical race theorist. He probably wouldn't call himself a leftist. He certainly wouldn't say that he subscribes to anything at the Frankfurt, Frankfurt School. And yet we see this lack of consistency that seems to be justified by, well, the ends justify the the means kind of thinking that it just it it really blows my mind. You would uh, better than I would even. Well, I don't know. The atheists were fairly uh, astute on this point as well. But you will understand very well that there are lots and lots and lots of people who call themselves Christian who may or may not qualify. And I would, in fact, say do qualify in the broad sense who have read virtually none of the Bible. Um, they, they, they think that, and unfortunately, I mean, I Russell Moore is not one of those people. Well, well, this is the, the point that I'm making is that he doesn't have to have read a page of the Frankfurt school to have adopted mm. the same belief structure. And so I know so many Christians whose favorite Bible verse would be something like God helps those who help themselves, which is not only not in the Bible, it is not, it is an anti-Christian sentiment. Right. And so uh, it was, it was a, it was one of those, um, strong agnostic or deistic uh, sentiments from from the 18th century. And so then that's their favorite Bible verse. So here what you, you you definitely can have. So that's a Christian who's taken on an atheistic worldview without realizing it. Here you can have a a person who's taken on this this very broadly critical worldview without having realized it. They can they can have taken on the fundamental asymmetry, the fundamental premises of critical race theory and repressive tolerance without having fully realized that that's what they're doing. So the second they set a different standard that's based in race and they say, well, look at the history of injustice in this country. And then they go one step further from that point and say that therefore makes us think that there are systemic injustices in this country today that cause us to need a double standard. They've already adopted the logic of critical race theory, even if they speak out against its specific tenets, just like you can have people who have adopted in in reverse. You have 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 atheists, for example, who act in very, a lot of the Christians when the, during the atheist 
Christian. Remember how quaint that was when we used to be able to argue about religion? Um, (laughs) How cute, how fun. Um, There were a lot of a lot of atheists or Christians, I'm sorry, who pointed out that atheists you're like, well, that's a Christian belief. That's a Christian. I just had a conversation with someone who said, you know, I was talking about how secular humanism, something about it. It doesn't make sense. I don't even remember what I said. And some secular humanist said, you know, I'm a secular humanist. We just believe in taking care of the widow and the orphan. I'm like, yeah, that's from the book of James. (laughs) That's that's a that's a verse in the Bible. And so you're just adopting Christian tenets and you're applying it to your be- belief in that there is no God and saying yep. that this is actually a tenet of atheism. It's not. No. So exactly. You so you also see then at the same time that somebody kind of taken on the tenets of critical race theory while believing themselves to be opposed to it. And uh, what's actually, if we, depending on how philosophically you like to get on your show, the the postmodern philosopher who was actually very good at diagnosing this, but also overdiagnosed it and made a lot of mistakes. John Francois Leotard called this legitimation by paralogy, and what paralogy? I almost broke it down as paralogy or paralogic beside logic. And uh, so it's a fake logic. It's a different way of thinking about the world. And for Christians, of course, because of the centrality of the logos to, uh, for example, the book of John, Mm -hmm. um, you would have a really profound understanding of how dangerous legitimation. So making something true or, or, or valid by means of a false logos. How, how, I mean, that's by by definition. I don't want to speak for Christians, but that's heresy. Yeah. <laughs> that's literally heresy. And so when you have folks like, like I think he's Dr. Moore, right? Maybe he's Mr. Moore. Uh, Dr. Speaking up like this, if he's speaking out of a paralogos, he's speaking heresy. He's taken on tenets of another faith, mixed it into his Christianity, reinterpreted it back through a Christological lens, and now he's in a bad place and doesn't know it. And on the one hand, you have to feel a bit of pity, but on the other hand, you have to realize that this is still— I mean, Jesus was right when he was like, you'll know them by their fruits. This is going to bear bad fruit. And mm-hmm. we already see the division that it's tearing and uh, tearing through the country, it, the division it's tearing through the churches. It's bearing bad fruit already. I can't— understand why people who are so deeply aware of the know them by their fruit gospel part of the gospel would would not realize when they see the fruit that that they must be on the wrong branch of the tree you know he would probably argue and we're really we were supposed to keep this to 15 minutes but um no it's not your fault i this has just been really uh interesting but I think he would probably argue that while the fruit of so-called, you know, Christian nationalism, which is an accusation that we're hearing from a lot of people in evangelicalism toward people who voted for Donald Trump, uh, the fruit is what happened at the Capitol. That is bad fruit. I'm the one bearing good fruit. And I actually agree with so much of what his article said. My only contention with it is uh, where is the consistency? Where is the consistency? There were people that were hurt by the violence that happened last year. Some of us have been condemning violence, political violence for more than one week. And so for this, for him to take a strong, courageous stand on this one thing and not having taken the same strong, courageous stand on another thing that would have probably had a much higher cultural cost than making this stand, that makes me say, okay, yeah, what you're saying is true, right on, obviously very well written, but... Where were you? But, you know, you already explained kind of the no, philosophical no, a, origins. That's of, important. Of that. That's yeah. The I tweeted this morning that the capital is the distraction. The asymmetry is the story. And mm, right. That is that's the key here. And so I also tweeted the other day and somebody emailed me and said it was super deep. So I'm all proud of myself. <laughs> um, but I, I tweeted that when when a society starts to reward cowardice as though it's bravery. And so it could be a church rewarding cowardice as though it's bravery. That's when you know it slipped off the rails. Mm -hmm. That's when you know that something bad is going on. And so it requires zero courage to condemn Maybe it requires some if you're in Trump circles. I talked with 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 David French yesterday. I had a short debate with David French yesterday. And um he has received death threats and many of the never Trump Republicans have received death threats from hardcore Trumpers and these kind of lunatics that most of us all don't approve of and of have been condemning from the beginning. Of course. Uh, and so I can understand where where you can have this, you know, 
feeling that it does take some courage to stand up against the hardcore Trumpers. So I don't want to go too far with it. But when you start rewarding in general, when you start rewarding something that only requires cowardice or going along with the crowd as though it's brave, you've got a problem going on. And it takes very little effort to condemn what's going on at the Capitol, even people that were at the Capitol. I just saw a video of a guy being interviewed today that, that had come out. He you know, he had just been pepper sprayed or something. And he's like, the people who were doing violence, that's not what we were here for. So he's he's there with pepper spray in his face condemning the violence. It's like a lot of not very many people supported what was going on in that regard, although altogether too many did. But to focus on that rather than to be aware of the asymmetry um, is is falling for the distraction of the moment that we will all rue. And he is right in the sense that there has been a history of, of white supremacy in the country and in the convention. There has, has been a problem of racism in the past in the country and in the convention, uh, Southern Baptist Convention, I mean. Mm -hmm. And those, those branches can grow poison fruit and do grow poison fruit as well. I even said uh, also on Twitter, another one somebody emailed me about was that I said that if we're all created in the image of God, then colorblindness of all forms must be holy because God can't possibly have a color. And then uh, that would mean that racism and this neo-racism in, in, in critical race theory would have to be evil. Right. And so if you, if you don't understand the asymmetry, I mean, there can be more than one bad fruit, right? You don't have to say, oh, that's a bad fruit, so this fruit must be, that's the opposite, right. it must be good. Right. You, right. Can, you can diverge both ways. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Um, I think there's a verse about something like the straight and narrow or the take the narrow path or something. I'm not a biblical Well, expert, you seem but. to be more biblically literate than uh, some people who profess to be Christians. All right. I've abandoned the goal of having this be a short interview. So I do want to ask you one more question um, because I saw this sure. on the news last night and um I, I figure that you would probably have a take on it. So Biden has tapped as the head of the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ, a woman named Kristen Clark. Now, she has an interesting background. She went to Harvard and uh, she wrote in Harvard or uh, in the in the Harvard Crimson that um, black people, according to her, have superior physical and mental abilities because of their melanin, because white people uh, can't produce as much melanin as black people, that they're actually inferior both mentally and physically. Now, this is someone who is supposed to be a champion of civil rights and is going to be put in an official position to champion civil rights for the country. Now, this fits in to a worldview that critical race theory is somehow going to achieve liberation and equity and equality. But for the people like you and me who sees that, OK, this is just another form of racism and discrimination that's going to lead to oppression. What do you think are going to be the tangible results of something like this? There's just going to be more justification of this. What we used to call, I don't know, I mean, some people called it reverse racism, but it, it is just racism. Some people now, I think, very cleverly are calling it, and I just use the word neo-racism, that they've reinvented racism. Uh, I think the tangible But they would say that, this, you know, black people can't be racist because they say racism is prejudice plus power. And since, right. according to critical uh -huh. race theory, black people don't have power they have been disenfranchised as we talked about it's impossible um it for seems them to be the opposite be situation racist. now as to who has power though doesn't it right and um that's why i like this term neo-racism because all of a sudden you know oh you took racism away fine you're a neo-racist and then what does that mean and they look into it and it means what they are uh, so it means reinventing racism i've been arguing from when i was doing the basic research for cynical theories several a couple of years ago when we were writing the chapter on critical race theory and finally really really reading into critical race theory to write it I my big discovery and I remember I remember contacting Helen Pluckrose in so much excitement when I realized this is like Helen, they reinvented the same problem. So what happened in the 1600s was that that white people put social significance of racial superiority and inferiority into the categories of white and black. And then we unleashed a monster doing that. And it took us three centuries or more, almost four centuries to 
fight back against that. We had to, to, to bear on the question scientifically. We had to bear on the question ethically. We had to bear on the question religiously. We had to bear on the question just about every way that you can possibly imagine. Finally, we achieve abolition. Finally, we, we, we write the Declaration of Independence, actually, and, and all men are created equal. And there we lay the seeds. We write the Constitution. And there the seed is, is, is planted. And finally, a hundred, uh, almost 100 years later, we get abolition. Finally, almost 100 years after that, we get rid of segregation and Jim Crow. We finally, 30 years after that, 40 years after that, have used comedy and social discourse and the the interactions between everyday people to have brought racism down to a low simmer at the worst. We've really made some progress undoing the mistake of just to put a fake date on it, 1650. And then... I said, Helen, these critical race theorists made the same mistake. They put social significance back into racial categories. They said Mm. it is important to distinguish the sentence, I am black. And this is quoting Kimberly Crenshaw, who is credited as the founder of intersectionality and the co-founder of critical race theory. She said it is important that we distinguish between the sentences, I am black and I am a person who happens to be black. And her problem with I am a person who happens to be black is it centers their universal humanity rather than their race, which would be useful for identity politics. Mm -hmm. So that's reinventing the same mistake of 1650 that took us three and a half centuries to undo the ravaging damages of. And this fits exactly into that logic. This woman is a race essentialist. She believes that there is some biological, this is actual biological racism coming back onto the scene, that there is a biological reason why black people in this case are genetically superior to white people And therefore, they have what she said, intellectual, physical and spiritual powers that that exceed that of the white. She talked about calcified pineal glands and all of this. And she she's going if she is in a power in a position of using of of judging civil rights law and she has beliefs like this. Granted, that was in the 90s that she wrote that um, then we have every reason to believe that what we're going to see is more of this asymmetric treatment. Uh, and, and and stronger justifications for it, or more ability for the people in that are supposed to be the adults in the room to apply a biased, as we would we would have said twenty years ago, backwards or reversed standard. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in plain terms, it's a reinvention of. In fact, I got this talking to a Kenyan man on the phone. A Kenyan scholar called me a few months ago, a couple of months ago, and he said that he's like, you're the only person who will understand. He's about to cry. You know, they can get, they tend to be so like big emotion that the the African people tend to be. And he's like, he's like, you're the only person who will understand. They've reinvented the mistake of 1650. Mm. And that's where I chose that date from. And so this is, this, we're seeing that now being deliberately empowered yeah. By this administration. And so tangibly, what we'll see is justifications coming from that civil rights office to continue tilting the playing field under a guise of leveling it. Right. And uh, that's going to create, again, problems, division, uh, alienation. If we want to talk in Marxist terms, which I'm fluent in those two, that is going to alienate an awful lot of people. Uh, and, and it's going to create nothing but problems. Yeah. And of course, if you react to this as someone who says, you know, a, a white male, the only demographic that was left out of Joe Biden's speech when he was saying, you know, we're going to build back better by resourcing, prioritizing uh, these people. If you do react in a way that says, Hey, you know, like I, I need help too. my business closed down too. uh, whatever it is, then you are told that that is your white fragility. That is your white privilege. And so you are told that that's actually an act of racism to say, hey, why, you know, why am I being punished as someone who was just born with a gender, who was just born with a skin color, but you're not allowed to care, you, James, as a white male about about those things. You're not allowed to say anything about it. And then we wonder why there is so much division and so much hatred and so much resentment. I was reading, I'm, I don't know if you've read C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, but he is talking about creating men without chests. Uh, and he's talking about uh, the, the, the school books at the time, how, well, I won't even get into his whole critique, but his uh, entire point was that we are saying that 
society is trying to build these virtues or to say that, for example, sacrifice is a good virtue or that charity is a good virtue while also rendering them impossible by what we're teaching people. And that's what I think of when I think of you talking about repressive tolerance or when I uh, hear people say, oh, you know, I just want love and unity and within the evangelical world, racial reconciliation. Well, you are saying that you are upholding these virtues, that you are making it impossible for us to actually manifest. You cannot find reconciliation and unity and so-called equity, equality, liberation, whatever it is that you are trying to achieve through the vehicle of critical race theory, because it does the exact opposite. It divides. Um, And so I see that problem within the church. I see it in the secular world. And I truly think that there are tangible consequences. Some people just think that we're talking or having an academic or philosophical conversation. It's not. It's going to affect your neighborhood. It might affect your suburb. It's going to affect your kid's school. It's going to affect how your kids act, possibly. Like in 1984, when Orwell talks about how everyone over 30 is scared of their kids because of how horrible they are. They, you know, yeah. snitch on their parents and and things like that. It's because of this kind of mentality that is going to flourish, that has been flourishing and is going to flourish even more um, under the Biden administration, I'm afraid. And I'm afraid we're going to see the worst of it in the next few years. I think so. Uh, This year will either prove pivotal or it will uh, become much worse over the next three. And then we'll see. And I don't know what will come. Um, This is, this is exactly what you just described. Things like that are already happening. We saw a 18 year old who turned in her mother for being at the Capitol. Not even storming the Capitol. Correct. Just there peacefully. I think. I have no idea what the story with that is. All mm-hmm. I know is that we have an 18-year-old eagerly turning in her mother to go viral on social media and then vigorously defending it and being vigorously defended for doing it. Uh, so and we, we already see this, you know, separations of families. You talk about neighborhoods. You talk about whatever club or affinity group, even the knitting, the knitting community somehow became like a flashpoint for this early on, yeah. like knitting, like, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's so street yeah. and it, it's, it's got just out of control. It will tear the, the logic of this is to create polarization to where you have to pick a side. And one side is the, again, we see that asymmetry. One side's always right. The other side's always wrong. And, um, it, I, I mentioned the Marx analysis and alienation and all of this a few minutes ago. The truth is what we're seeing is that people have taken it, it, the best, most charitable way you can read it, you can say Marx wrote a great critique of capitalism, of the dangers of capitalism. You can say that the critical theorists wrote a great critique and of the dangers of fascism. You can say that the that the postmodernists wrote a great critique of the ideas of social power, and all of that is correct. Um, but what we have now is people who have taken those things, and I think it may have been those those writers' intentions. But nevertheless, as instruction manuals, if you read them as warnings and as critiques and as uh, especially the postmodernists are easy to read as as warning people of what can go wrong um, because they didn't want to commit to anything. So they, they weren't pushing any kind of agenda. They were just playing around with words and tearing everything apart. If you look at them as warnings and then you realize that people have said, oh, those are tools we can pick up and use against society. Then you find yourself, that's where I am now, in a very awkward position of realizing just how dangerous this stuff is. For example, critical race theory will create only division, polarization in particular, not just division. You will have to Eight. pick sides and one side will be asymmetrically viewed as evil where the other side will be viewed as good um, in a way that is is almost incomprehensible unless you're playing within it. And right. nothing good happens here. So. We will see all kinds of problems emerge out of this. And if you read those theories, especially Marx and the critical theorists, less the postmodernists, that alienation was the goal. They want critical race theory was born out of a tradition that wants to alienate people specifically so that society will fray and come apart. And then they, by having the asymmetric position, will be able to claim the mantle of power for yeah. their, their project. Right. 
Right. Um, Can you give anyone (laughs) a little bit of optimism or at least some advice? Because I think what people feel after this, um, even if they're not looking for some rosy picture of the future, they just want to know, okay, what what do I do? Because I see this in my kids' curriculum. I see this at the college that I'm, you know, paying to indoctrinate my adult child. I see this at work in diversity and inclusion trainings. I see this among my friends. I see this in my, in my pastor. And they don't feel equipped to be able to say anything. And they don't know if they should say anything. They really just want to be quiet so they don't get canceled. Um, what's your right. advice to them? Well, um, you're going to get canceled. So, you know, I... I should warn you about that. So speak up while you can speak more rather than when you won't be able to speak as much. That said, there are a lot of reasons for optimism and there are a lot of things people can do. One reason for optimism is that the United States was built on firm principles, good principles and good ideas. And the Constitution has not been shredded. It's just being threatened. Mm. And so the courts may be a wonderful line of defense against this that starts turning things back. Um, We see already indications that the tech companies are going to be pushed on antitrust legislation. We'll see how that pans out or on antitrust charges, at least. We'll see how that works. That that may change some things very quickly. We see um, schools being pressured in the same way. So there are ways that things will turn back as a, as a point of optimism. More people are now aware of this problem than ever before. And awareness is actually the main thing that it takes. When you realize that these things that are happening are manipulations and you're aware of the manipulations, they don't work. They don't work on you. And so this rapid awareness over the past first six months or eight months or whatever, and then again in the past week or two, that has has arisen to what's going on with this this rapidly progressing movement seems to be happening faster than uh, the people who are pushing it would have wanted. People have become aware that they are in a totalitarian trap much sooner than they wanted, and they're becoming aware of the manipulations. So something you can do is learn a little bit about. You don't have to learn a lot. You can learn a little bit about critical race theory and these other ideologies, and then you understand what they're doing, and you won't fall for it. And then you won't get sucked into those traps where you feel bad and you go along with it. Mm-hmm. Another thing that you can do is just the, the the proverb in Poland during the or the saying in Poland during the Polish Revolution I'm told was was live as though they don't exist. And so you can carry on to the degree that you need to. And I think that's actually got a very Christian background, right? You know, the the, the Roman persecution people certainly we're not having a good hundred years there as Christians. Yeah. And they still had to do their Christianity. They had to live their beliefs as best they could, as though the Roman persecution of them did not exist. And then eventually the truth outs. The truth, reality always wins. So the bad times may last a, a, a week. They may last a season. They may last a year. They may last a hundred years. They may last a thousand years. But the truth in reality, always went out in the end. And so people who are willing to take the side of that now are already, you know, we always hear, yo, you have to be on the right side of history. The right side of history is on, is, is, is whichever side is on the side of truth. Right. Right. And that's, I think the most optimistic and hopeful thing. And that more and more people realize this and realize that there's a need to, to stand up and just not go along with the crowd right now is it's just a really hopeful sign to me. So there's lots of reasons to be hopeful. The US is a good place. The truth reality bats last. The truth wins out. Um I won't be so cheeky as to make a claim about, you know, it's in God's hands and and bear into your faith because I don't want to come off awkwardly, but I hear a lot of Christians say that to each other. And so to remember, I think uh, Daryl Bernard Harrison recently said, remember that this is God's fight. And so I'll say it through him because uh, that way I'm not being, you know, inappropriate or something. Yeah. 
you're close. You're close, James. You're gonna you're gonna be you're gonna be back on this show, and you're gonna tell me about how you traveled uh, theologically, and you realized that really the real, the only real lasting and ultimate pushback to all the craziness that we're seeing is a theological one. And I will have a conversation with you about that at some point. This was supposed to be. A short interview. It wasn't because I couldn't stop asking you, uh, asking you questions. So thank you so much for taking the time and peeling back the the skin of the onion for us. Unfortunately, discourse, which is what you are trying to do and trying to lead, is getting harder and harder with that kind of repressive tolerance that we're seeing. But while people can support you, um, how can they? Where can they find you? Where can they buy your book? So, well, I would say the normally is you can buy my book anywhere where books are sold, but there are certain companies that sell books right now that maybe you shouldn't use yeah. and uh, because they're exerting monopolistic control over the whole world. Um, so my book is pretty easily available until it gets canceled from from most booksellers. So, you know, pick your favorite one that maybe doesn't sound like a jungle in Brazil and <laughs> do what you will with it. And uh you can find me also on my as long as it lasts on the website newdiscourses.com. That's uh, the home of my company, New Discourses. There are lots of ways to support. There's a support button that's easily found right at the top, so you can find ways to support it if that's what you want to do that way. Um, if you just want to share the articles and share the information on there, that's supporting me too. If you just want to send a nice note, that's also support. I'm very uh, grateful for all of that. Um, you can find me on social media everywhere that I have one so far at Conceptual James. I'm mostly active on Twitter. I find more than one social media platform exhausting, so I kind of stick to one. But um, I do copy most of it to the other ones. So as long as I'm still on social media, you can find me and support me that, there as well. Same stuff. You can you know, send me kind words or you can share my message and hopefully get that out there. Or you can send you can see your send your disagreeing words to him too, and he typically does respond to those on Twitter, right? Yeah, that's true. If you're rude, though, my rule is tit for tat. So if you come <laughs> politely, I will be polite, and if you come rude, I'm probably gonna say something rude back. Yeah, um, yeah that's so, typically how social. But it's media all in goes. good. I hope people understand though that first of all, it is that I will not provoke rudeness, and second of all. Um, I do try to keep good humor about it. I don't yeah. try to be mean to anybody and I don't try to make it too personal. Although yeah. some people would read it as personal when I'm trying to be funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that about you. And like you said, truth, I we say on this podcast, truth is like a beach ball. You can try to push it under the water and you might be successful for a little bit, especially if you have a lot of people doing it. Eventually it's going to pop back up. And that's exactly what you were saying in your last answer. So that is a bit of optimism for people. Doesn't mean it's not going to be a hard fight. Doesn't mean, like you said, you won't be canceled in the process. But it will be worth it. You you want to be on the side of the beach ball, not the people trying to uh, push it down. So thank you so much again. Uh, we will have you back on soon. Thank you. 